You're listening to the James Faith in Jesus Work Series, preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Money is a wonderful slave, but a terrible master. How true that is, right? We know it to be true. Money is a wonderful slave, but a terrible master. But it seems like this particular slave, it's very difficult to keep him from becoming our master. It's, it's really funny how that works. It's not just the money, right? It's the stuff that the money buys. It's the cars. It's the clothing. It's the jewelry. You can tell for me it's the jewelry. <laughs> it's the vacations, the cruises. It's the home or the home remodel. Food, the experiences that money can buy, the toys, the tools, the status. We can go on and on and on about how great all the things we get from money is, and hopefully I hit one of yours, but if I haven't, then just stick yours in there. There's something that money buys you that you really love, that you really enjoy, that you really think you need. And yet, the pages of Scripture sound the warning bells time and time again, of the clear and present danger of the pursuit of money and of the possession of wealth. Greed, covetousness, jealousy, and materialism are not virtues of the godly believer. Those are problems. And having money and and pursuing money compounds those problems. And so here we have a subject where obeying what the Bible says is really a matter of faith. Because what happens is, as we think about money and as we think about our possessions, everything in our flesh says, I want more. I need that. I like that. I love that. And everything that the world is bombarding us with us constantly is, you need more. More will make you happy. If you just have this product and this vacation and this thing, then you'll find the contentment you seek. And, and we buy into it because when we get new stuff and when we, when we have more money, we get this momentary sense of joy, of contentment. It's like, yeah, that's what I wanted. When I was a kid, I would get Christmas presents and I'd be so excited about them, I slept with them. And we're talking like I would sleep with a hockey stick, if I got a new hockey stick, a pair of skates, which was probably really dangerous. But I, I would, because I was just so excited about that new object because for a while it made me happy. And eventually... Just like every other toy, just like every other thing we get, it was thrown away. It was forgotten. Every rap song that has ever been written, just about, seems to celebrate money. And I think the reason for that and the reason that our culture is so for it is that it really just is something that's, that's right into our culture and right into our flesh. Right? It appeals to all of us. And so, as believers, sometimes we, fall, we find ourselves falling into the trap. And what's funny is we know it's a trap, but it's a very comfortable trap. And now in walks Jesus and ruins everything. Jesus says, Beware of covetousness, for a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. He said, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust corrupts and where thieves break through and steal. 
But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Really, Jesus? You had to go there? Okay, so we get it. It's not about all the stuff. We, it's not like our life should, should be wrapped up in everything we possess. It's not like we should be living our lives just to heap up piles of treasure for ourselves. But there must be some middle ground. Maybe. Mark, 20, Mark 10.25, Jesus says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And all I'm saying tonight is the Bible does warn us often of the pursuit of wealth and the possession of wealth. And it all comes down to this one problem. Jesus said it in Matthew 6.24. You cannot serve God and mammon. And in the context, what he's saying is, you cannot love and worship both God and money. They can't both be your treasure. They can't both be your God. Right? You cannot pursue both God and money wholeheartedly, just like you couldn't have two wives and pursue them both wholeheartedly at the same time. Right? Because loving one would mean taking away love from another. It would mean loving the other less. It's the same way. The truth is, we don't like this very much, but wealth it's not a sign of God's blessing. Most of the time. I understand that there are times in the Bible where God blessed people with money. And so, so it's not that. But most of the time, wealth in the Bible isn't considered a sign of God's blessing. Instead, it is a potential spiritual handicap. And so we should be warned of it. I know the church in North America, as we think this way, says a collective, ouch. Because it hurts. It should sting. And if it stings, it's a good thing. It means the medicine's working. That's what I'm always told. Stinging is good. So tonight, do me a favor and let it sting a little. Believe that maybe a part of the text that we're going to be in tonight, the part of the message tonight, is for you. Open up yourself to saying, this isn't just for my neighbor. This isn't just for the guy down the street who's just obsessed with his new boat or whatever. Say, is there a part of my life that needs what James is saying here tonight? Sometimes we need a good dose of, hey, goofball, money is not God. And money cannot give your life meaning, purpose, value, or hope. Maybe God doesn't call you goofball, but he does me. (laughs) So here comes James chapter 5, which is exactly what we need. We would be hard-pressed to find a more seething condemnation of anything in the whole Bible as we find here in James 5 as he targets those who whose God is their money. Uh, it's so bad that I, this is a true story. Story. Um, 80 years ago, there was an American author named Upton Sinclair. And he took James chapter 5, the first six verses, and he made it into a paraphrase. And then he read it in front of a group of ministers and pastors. But when he read it, he told them that the author was a woman named Emma Goldman. And Emma Goldman was a well-known political anarchist. And when they heard the words from James 5, which they thought were the words of Emma, they all shouted that she should be deported from the United States immediately. (laughs) Imagine what they found out when he said, actually, you know what, come to think of it, that's not Emma. (laughs) That was James under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Here, James is writing to believers scattered across the Roman Empire, 
This is a land where money is not divided evenly among the people. There is the very rich and the very poor, and most of his audience would find themselves in the latter group. By this time, many of them were suffering, suffering for their faith, and some of them were suffering financially. Some of them had been victims of the exploitation that James is going to be speaking about in these verses. And so I think this was written for a couple reasons. The first one was to encourage them. He wanted them to be encouraged that their current status was not an indication of a lack of love from their father. That one day all the wrongs that they suffered would be righted. That those who are truly rich are those who have wealth in the kingdom of God. The kingdom that will never end. So I think it's an encouragement. And I can imagine if we were there in the first century and we were poor and we'd just gone through a farmer who ripped us off or, or we were going through financial troubles and we, we read this, we'd be like, you know what? That's right. I shouldn't, be, I shouldn't be so worried about that. I'm just going to trust God and know that my riches are in heaven. But I also think it serves as a warning. I think it serves as a warning of the dangers and the deceitfulness of wealth because they're certainly there. So let's read James 5, verses 1 to 6. James writes, Go to now, you rich men. Weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, cries. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of the Sabaoth. You have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. You have nourished your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed the just, and he does not resist you. Last week, I said there were at least four lessons to be learned from our text, and we looked at the first lesson last time. We said that one of the problems that we see here is the useless hoarding of money and possessions. The insatiable desire for more and more and more, more pairs of shoes, more fancy toys, one more tool. There's a wise man that once said, he that loves silver shall not be satisfied with silver nor he that loves abundance with increase. A wise man was actually the wisest and the wealthiest man that has ever lived. That was, the, that was King Solomon. He was uniquely qualified to make that statement. If you love silver, it will never satisfy you. If you want more, the more you get, the more you will need. Every time. Deep down, I think we know that. But isn't it funny how sometimes we act like little children in a nursery where we're going around and collecting all of these things just so that we can stand over them and declare, mine. You're not playing with that toy. I don't care. It's mine. You can't have it because it's mine. And we get to look at, at all we have. The storage bin's full. right? The garage is full. The attic's full. And declare, Mine. Isn't that wonderful? Before we move on, I want to tell you a quick story. This is another true story about a woman named Bertha. Bertha Adams was 71 years old when she died. 
And when she died, she lived in West Palm Beach, Florida. It was on Easter Sunday in 1976, and the cause of death was malnutrition. When Bertha finally passed, she had wasted away to a mere 50 pounds. Her vital organs eventually just shut down. Sorry, it's worse. Seems like for years, Bertha had been surviving only by knocking on the doors of neighbors and begging for food. All the clothes that she owned had come from the Salvation Army. And from all appearances, Bertha had nothing. When they went in, they found piles and piles and piles of junk everywhere. But as they sorted through the junk, they found two keys. And turns out those keys were keys at a bank, at a safety deposit boxes, two different, two different banks. When they opened those safety deposit boxes, they were surprised to find that the first box came, contained over 700 AT&T stock certificates and hundreds of other valuable certificates, bonds, and solid financial securities, and a stack of cash that totaled to $200,000. So they checked the second bank. This one only had cash, $600,000. So this woman died of malnutrition when at the bank she had over a million dollars worth of cash. And all she cared about in her life was saving more and more and more money so that she could be rich. And her great wealth did her no good. And what's crazy is that if that wealth was used properly, it could have been so helpful for her. It could have been meant good health for many more years for her. And it could have helped so many others. What a waste. Problem number one is useless hoarding of money and possessions. The problem number two is the fraudulent acquisition of money and possessions. We find this in verse 4. James says, Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, cries. And the cries of them which have reaped have entered in the ears, the ears of the Lord of hosts. Sabaoth means hosts, and it's harder to say, easier to say. So, Lord of hosts. Um, when I read that, it almost, it almost sounds a little bit like a scene in a movie or a book or something, doesn't it? Uh, that here a man or a woman has committed a crime, and it seems like they've been able to get away with the crime, right? They're not being convicted. There's no problem, except the cries of the victims rise up in their ears. The cries of the victims keep coming back and keep coming back. And even though they seem to have escaped punishment for now, eventually punishment will come. Except, in this case, the cries of the victims rise up to the Lord of hosts, right? the God of angel armies who supremely rules over every inch of the universe. He hears the cries of the poor who have been defrauded by the rich. And he loves those poor, exploited laborers. And this is not good news for those people who are getting rich off their backs. The story we read here is far more normal than we care to believe. All over the world, rich people are taking advantage of poor people. In some cases, they're paying them something. Maybe a dollar a day to work their coffee fields. Some cases, they don't get anything. Maybe enough food to survive. And that's it. 
Slave labor is so incredibly common. We don't like to think about it, but this kind of thing, it's, it's really common. And here we have James telling these believers that, hey, if you're in that situation, don't worry. God hears your cries. And if you're one of those people that is getting rich off the backs of others, you ought to know that God hears their cries. In the Old Testament, it speaks often to this issue. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 14, God is constantly making sure that people are taken care of. I actually think this is an amazing thing about um, how God reveals himself. In Deuteronomy 24, 14, he says, Thou shalt not oppress a hired servant that is poor and needy, whether he be of thy brethren or of thy strangers that are, that are in thy land within thy gates. He says, I don't care if it's your brother or if it's a stranger from another country that you've never met. Don't ever take advantage of them. Pay them what you owe them. Don't rip people off. Don't be cheap when you pay your employees. Do you know what's amazing? There is not, nobody, nobody likes cheap people. Nobody does. And do you know what cheap people think? That nobody notices. Everybody knows. We all know you're cheap, right? So stop it. Don't rip people off. Don't take money that you didn't earn. Employees, do the work that you've been paid to do. Don't waste resources. Don't waste time. Don't accept money that you didn't earn. This is, this is what the Bible is saying here. Don't, don't be gaining and getting wealthy off of other people's stuff. If you didn't work for it and you didn't earn it, don't take it. It's not yours. So here's a test for you. In the Old Testament, God had commanded that the land would be worked for six years and then there would be a rest year on the seventh year, a Sabbath year. And these farmers had a decision to make. Do you pay your laborers for six years and then lay them off on the seventh year just to hire them again on the eighth year? Start the process again? Or do you continue to pay them even though they don't, you don't have a field to work? What do you do? That's, I mean, that's a good way to think about what you do in these situations. Are you cheap? Are, are you the person that says, oh, this is the right, this is the way I can most benefit myself and it makes sense because, you know, they didn't work this time and I'll just... Well, think about it because what the Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 15 verse 9 is you pay them. You pay them for the year they don't work. Now, that's almost, that's surprising to us. But that's what God planned for them to do. And so here it is. When in doubt, pay them. When in doubt about how much, pay them more. Just make sure you're not defrauding people. Problem number one is the, the, number two is a fraudulent acquisition of money and possessions. It's taking advantage of other people so that you can get richer. Problem number three, this is found in verse five, using resources solely for one's own pleasure. James 5.5 5 says, You have lived in pleasure on the earth, and you've been wanton. You have nourished your hearts as in the day of slaughter. Has it dawned on you that when he says this, the first part of each of those conjunctions are the goal of the, is the goal of the majority of our culture? You have lived in pleasure on the earth. You have nourished your hearts. Doesn't that sound good? I mean, you've lived for pleasure. You've lived for a good time. You've lived for luxury. You've lived for nice things, for nice vacations. You've lived 
so that you would feel good to pamper yourself. And self-indulgence like this seems to be the cornerstone of Western culture. It's all about me. It's all about what I can have. It's all about making my life easier and better and more comfortable. If we had the ability to help others, but we are more important. We could have saved lives, but making our life more comfortable is what it's all about. We could feed the hungry. We could heal the sick. We could clothe the naked. We could bring hope to the hopeless. But why do that when we could have cowhide leather heated seats in our brand new car? Now again, I'm not saying that James is condemning wealth per se. There are some people who have cowhide heated seats in their new leather vehicles, and it's completely fine. No problem. Because those people are sacrificially giving. And and God has blessed them, and, and they're taking care of all of the needs that they can. And so God is not against wealth per se, but he is about against this attitude where it's just the obsession of your own pleasure. It's about living for what you can get and for how your life can be better. That's not the Christian way. Get that. I mean, this is, this is one of the ways where Christianity has to separate itself from the culture. The culture says, I want more. I want better. I want nicer. And Christianity has to say, okay, like maybe there's a place for nice things, but I got to make sure I'm taking the responsibilities that God has given me first to take care of others around me, to take care of my church family, to take care of my church, right? To take care of all of these other things that come up. And God does present needs to us all the time. He's, a, he's condemning those who are obsessed with their own pleasure, their own good life, and the desire to pamper their own hearts. But they do nothing to meet the needs of those around them. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 7, we see again the heart of God. He says, If there be any among you a poor man of one of thy brethren within any of the gates in the land which the Lord thy God gives thee. Do you, do you understand how he said that? That if there's anybody in the land, I mean anywhere you know of somebody, in the land that God gave you, like it's God's, thou shalt not harden thine heart, nor shut thine hand from thy poor brother, but thou shalt open thine hand wide unto him. That should be the attitude of the believer. Don't use your resources solely for your own pleasure. As John Calvin puts it eloquently, Self-indulgence wins no favor with God. Don't live for yourself. Problem number four, they killed people. (laughs) This one might be an obvious problem, but it was a problem. Now, admittedly, verse number six is the most difficult in the passage to interpret. It says, you have condemned and killed the just, and he does not resist you. And the idea there is that first they condemned, and then they killed the just. And it's speaking here of judicial murder where what was happening is they would take the poor to court and they would take away from the poor either their means of living or all that they had such that that person was in a state where there was, there was no way that they could live. And this was happening, right? And, and he was saying, they, they're not resisting you. In other words, they're not opposing you. They're, they haven't wronged you in any way. You've just found a way to use your power because you know when you take them to court, you know you are going to win. I mean, there's no chance that poor person has. 
And so you're using your power to get yourself richer and essentially to commit murder to those people. This is the one who who uses power and takes advantage of the powerless. And again, this is where Christianity must separate itself. This is where Christians should be the ones to stand up for the powerless. Certainly never take advantage of them. Because in God's eyes, when that happens, in doing so, you've murdered the poor. And so, tonight, we see these problems with mankind, right? We like to hoard stuff for ourselves. It's just all about me. It's all about everything that I can get. We like to um, get money in fraudulent ways, however we can. Just I'm going to find a way to use the system and use the person and use whatever so it's more for me. We like to spend money on ourselves, self-indulgence. And we're willing to take advantage of the people so much that we take the little they have make ourselves richer. Mankind is, at times, pretty disgusting. We hoard, and we know this all to be true, right? Men and women are greedy. This is not news to you. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. We see that playing out all the time. But I don't want our final thought to be tonight about the depravity of man. I want us to consider the character of God displayed for us in this text. You see, as we look at the text, he is the helper of the helpless, right? He's the writer of wrongs. He's he's the one who has a heart to provide for the poor. And over and over and over again in his laws in the Old Testament, he's making provision for the poor, right? You're not allowed to go back into your fields and collect the rest. Why? Because all the rest, all that's left behind is it's for the poor, Leave the corners alone. That's for the poor. He's taking care of them. He's making sure that they're not being mistreated, that they're not being taken advantage of. The laws are in place. This is the character of God. It's to treat men and women fairly. Treat them justly. And and then, when mankind fails so miserably, God steps off his throne and humbles himself by robing deity in, in human flesh. The king of the universe. Let that sink in. The king of the universe lives as a poor carpenter's son. He knows hunger. He knows thirst. He knows homelessness. And he knows what it's like to be the victim. And ultimately, he goes to the cross bearing the wages of another person's sins. In fact, all of our sins. There is not a more unfair moment in all of history than the moment that Jesus paid the debt that I owed. He paid for the sin I committed. He died for the poorest of the poor, and he died for the richest of the rich. He died for all because he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And that's all of us. He came to give his life a ransom for many. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, we read these incredible words. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, <laughs> that's an understatement, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be 
rich. Now, don't dare tell me that that verse is about you having a fancy car. It's not. That verse is about you having the eternal life that you don't deserve. And that's amazing. And this is a Savior worth following. It's a Savior worth giving everything for because you understand He gave it all to you in the first place. And that now, because of Him, you have all things in Him. Right? You're heir of all things. But, if you want to follow Him, remember this. You cannot serve love, worship, both God and money. So let's check out our hearts. And let's see if there's any chance that there's some love of possessions, of wealth, of money that's still there. And if it is, root it out. Give it to the Lord. And follow Him with your whole hearts. Let's pray.